I'm not sure that things are ever going to go back to quite how they were before. I hope that some elements of being connected to people and being able to hug them and go into their homes to get to know them better and share a cup of tea with them, I hope all that will return. But I think the last year is definitely going to leave its scars. I think it's very disappointing how little thought has been put in to allowing people to grieve this whole year where we've had such restrictions and for some the restrictions have been accompanied by bereavement. It's barbaric. You're just robbing people who have already been robbed. It's insensitive. It does not allow for that chapter of a process to be closed. Yeah, I mean, the thing that has been said to me the most has been, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye, and I hope he or she knew how much I loved them. My name is Lisa Wilkinson, and I live in County Antrim in Northern Ireland. So one of my roles is a humanist funeral celebrant. My father died 20 years ago. I remember I wanted everybody to go away. There was nowhere in your house that you could walk into where somebody wasn't standing. There were people everywhere. Tea and sandwiches reached to you all the time and all I wanted to do was ask them all to leave. But when you reflect back, there is a warmth about your grief being witnessed which is currently absent. My father passed away 2018. I'm not a particularly religious person, I'm Jewish and I'm practising, but if I'm honest I didn't really relish the thought of having to go through the intensity of being with a load of people and having to follow that practice of sitting shiver it's called, being in mourning. It kind of felt that I've already lost somebody, I don't want to kind of go through that experience. The actual mourners descended upon my mum's house for the seven days of, of mourning. Throughout the course of each day, mourners kind of drift in and you would kind of take your position of mourning with a shirt showing its rip, right, sitting on low chairs. It puts you into this zone that you're receiving, you're saying prayers, you're remembering. And at the end of it, you formally get up. The rabbi says, hey, time has passed, you know, long life. Get out, leave the house, go for a walk. You have now finished. And I personally found that whole process quite cathartic, therapeutic, if you like, and, and helped you really get over uh, the intensity of the experience of losing someone. My dad used to say, the two best parties in life, they're either a wedding or a funeral and he was absolutely right it's where your body is alert and sensitive to a really either joyous moment or where it's an incredibly raw emotional environment where again after a little bit of liquor you can let your hair down and that's what happens you know because it is ultimately the giving thanks for life and celebrating a life my name is toby angel and i'm one of the co-founders and the managing director of a business called Sacred Stones Limited. We are charged with looking after the cremation ashes of loved ones 
and we're looking after families who wish to commemorate. A funeral is an acknowledgement that something has happened. It marks a significant change in our lives. Ultimately, life is going to go on and a funeral is an opportunity for us to acknowledge the reality of what's happened so that we can live our best lives moving forward. My name is Louise Winter. I'm a funeral director and the founder of Poetic Endings. We help people put together beautiful, thoughtful and meaningful funerals. Death is fascinating in all religions and all cultures. Death and its rituals are of very high importance and, and if they're not done correctly can lead to lasting memories for the families that they didn't do things right or as per wishes of the family. My name is Dr. Wahid Khan. I'm one of the trustees of the Inverness Mosque, uh, which is the northernmost uh, mosque in uh, Britain. When somebody dies, uh, people start gathering at the house of that person. Lots of neighbors uh, start producing food for that family so they don't have to cook. These are very social interlinked rituals or procedures which keeps the community binding. My name is Miri Lawrence. I'm a liberal Jewish rabbi. It's customary in Judaism when someone has died that you wish the mourner a long life. Sometimes that might seem a bit of a strange phrase, but it's kind of a rubric. So you just know what to say at a time where sometimes we don't have the words. If you accept that there are three principal rituals in life, union, people coming together, creation if they're fortunate enough to have children, and then of course death. And there are complex rituals around each of those three, but I would volunteer that perhaps the last one is so significant because it, it involves all of us. The restrictions have removed so many rituals and practices and processes. So normally, as a celebrant, you would always arrive very early and you would park outside the main building. No, not this time. You can't shake hands. You have to stand at a distance with a mask. You deliver the tribute outside this building. You're not allowed in the building. And then halfway through or whatever, you nod at the funeral director who wraps these wooden doors twice. Two members of staff come out. They don't speak, don't offer condolences. They just take the coffin away and close these two wooden doors again. And then a small TV screen comes on outside. And that's how you say your final farewells on a TV screen. The main restriction right now is the number of people who are allowed to attend the funeral. Lots of burial chapels are closed, so graveside services have been taking place outside. When the first lockdown happened, and particularly flowers stopped, florists couldn't work, the flower markets were closed. And flowers have been such an important part of the funeral of bringing some colour and life and joy and beauty to it. So it was really hard not being able to have roses to place on the coffin. I couldn't imagine a funeral where I didn't at least 
put an arm on a shoulder as we were walking to the graveside. I would normally give somebody a hug if they were distressed. That's not really about Judaism or religion. It's just the humanity of comforting somebody when they are grieving. And I remember at one funeral, one of the main mourners saying to me, I've got gloves on, can I at least hold your hand? It kind of felt, you know, you've got the government restrictions, which are there and should be there, but almost a feeling of being policed and doing the wrong thing at a time when everything physically in your body is saying, I want to reach out to that person. The government does issue guidelines through Public Health England, and that does allow a certain amount of interaction with the body, allows ritual washing and dressing, and providing precautions are taken. As a company, we have a much stricter policy because I don't trust that the virus won't mutate and that it is safe. So we've had to adapt to the restrictions the starting process of collecting a deceased, you know, we've had to have a dedicated transport team, whereas um, historically family members would be involved in that. My name is Shoa Bucks. I'm a volunteer at Preston Muslim Burial Society that helps the Muslims of Preston and surrounding areas process their deceased. The pandemic required a lot of background research into what's possible in terms of whether we're still able to continue to wash and shroud the way we've normally done. The Gussel team or the shrouding and bathing team had to be a dedicated team of volunteers because we could put them through the appropriate training on how to don and doff PPE, how to ensure that the precautions were taken to reduce any risk of transmission, as well as how to continue giving the wash with certain protections. At my aunt's funeral, there had been new restrictions brought in that morning, where when the coffin is brought out of the hearse, it's sprayed. I was horrified. So I said to my sister, turn your back and take Aunt Margaret's perfume with you. And when they start to spray the coffin, spray her perfume everywhere. Let that be the spray noise that you see and hear and smell. The most important thing is that people mustn't feel rushed. And that is without doubt the biggest challenge for family. The fact that someone has died and they may not have even been there when they died or they may not be allowed to see them. But then when it comes to ritualising and giving thanks and they're told, well, you can only have 20 minutes, tops. Well, that is not healthy. That's my question, my one burning question. Who decided 20 minutes was enough? At the moment, the COVID regulations are making it quite difficult anyway because there's got to be enough time to clean everything down in between ceremonies. My name's Rachel Meyer and I'm a humanist celebrant. So I trained as a wedding celebrant first and then the pandemic hit and all the weddings were put on hold. So during lockdown, I decided it would be a good idea to do the training as a funeral celebrant. 
Um, but there's a lot more that goes into being a funeral celebrant emotionally because, of course, you're dealing with grief. We have seen uh, a difference in terms of how families grieve. It has added additional pressure with having to deal with who they now take to a funeral, whereas previously would have been it's open to anybody and they would see, you know, hundreds of people uh, at a funeral prayer. You know that when you go to a funeral, there will be prayers, there will be some singing, there will be a eulogy, there'll be the rituals around the graveside and the putting the earth. And these have all been minimised to a certain extent. So, for example, you have to handpick your mourners. You don't have the music. Rather than have the committal with the spades of earth, you might just have either a small spade or just a very small handful. But when you all put it together, it, it kind of feels like half a funeral. My mum was in a nursing home for what was to be two weeks. And then on New Year's Day, the staff from the home rang to say I couldn't come because my mum was one of five residents who had tested positive for COVID. I knew, I knew straight away she won't make it. I got another call to say that she was unresponsive. And then another call 15 minutes after that to say that she had died. And it's at that stage where you realise all the things that you're not going to have, all those rituals and practices that bring comfort. So we weren't allowed to see her ever again. Fortunately for us, we're a family of five, my husband, my son and his fiancée and my daughter and that's our bubble so we could be together because of my work. I knew I will never say goodbye to my mother on a TV screen, it's just not going to happen. And I was aware that the next nearest crematorium in County Cavan, which is in the south of Ireland, so under a different government, jurisdiction, everything. I knew that the crematorium there was a warmer place to be. Three hour drive, but I decided we're taking Granny to Cavan and it won't be 10 minutes outside on a TV. Grief in lockdown is so difficult. People have often been through really traumatic, awful experiences. I've noticed that lots of grieving people are going through a really intense period of pain. And it's because they are mostly at home thinking about what has happened and life is not moving. It all just feels very stark. Since we were all completely sort of locked down, I've, I've been doing everything over Zoom. It's almost been um, a good part of the grieving process normally a wake that follows the ceremony is the place where family friends would gather together and show each other support and people are not allowed to go into each other's houses anymore or get together so all of that support network has been stripped away and I've been told that 
having the Zoom planning meetings for the ceremony allows more people than you perhaps might normally speak to, to be all together in the same room, albeit a Zoom room. And as a celebrant, you know, I'm firing questions at everybody, trying to promote memories of, of all times in the deceased's life. People say that it's actually given them the opportunity to think about the good times that they've had and, you know, have happy thoughts and smile in the middle of that grief. When somebody is in a near dying state, uh, we have a religious obligation to go and see them and pray and um, and recite the, the Shahada, which is there's only one God and Prophet Muhammad is the, the messenger. So one notification system we did and we felt it was very important to do right at the beginning of this pandemic is to have a Twitter account created specifically for Preston Muslim Burial Society and every deceased that we would process, we would then tweet out the name of that individual and where they were from and when they passed away and then a little prayer to go after that and we tweet that out as a public notification system purely to get the accurate details out there of who's passed away in order to avoid any misunderstanding as well as allowing people to then send on their condolences i did a funeral ceremony for a lady who had died she was living in a care home in Yorkshire and her son and his family lived in Hong Kong and because of the travel restrictions because of Covid they weren't allowed or it would it would have been incredibly difficult for them to come over for the funeral. So the funeral director arranged an audiovisual company to come and basically beam him into the crematorium chapel on a big TV screen. So he was beamed in live to speak to everybody during the ceremony. So not only was it webcast out to him, he was kind of in the room as well, which was incredible. Over the last year, we've been incredibly innovative, but the whole process around funerals and dying and the different periods of mourning, there's a familiarity about them. And I think that, that that's Certainly why I haven't chosen to make innovations, because I think it's been important to keep as much as familiar as possible as part of taking comfort from the prescribed rituals and liturgy that's in existence. The more honest we are about what's going on, I think the better it can be. It's about allowing our emotions to come up, not trying to hide them or dismiss them or drink them away or smoke them away, anything like that. Just about sitting with the acknowledgement, the reality of what is happening um, so that we can find a way not to be completely traumatized by it like previous generations have been. Maybe it's a, it's a strange thing to say that, but the communities are more united and more together. Uh, after the pandemic, actually, than before, we, we will appreciate things like praying together, eating together, a lot more after this lockdown is finished. We have to mark this now. We have to leverage the cohesion that we're all experiencing to acknowledge that, you know, something monumental is happening to all of us. It affects all of us.
So the COVID-19 stone came about because we just felt there was a need to do something. A family who've given a lot to our community had one of the senior members of their family die. The whole sort of communal life of how we would say goodbye to that person just wasn't able to happen. I suggested that if we raised a standing stone, it would find a means to meaning in some ways. So my name's uh, Tim Ashton, and I'm a farmer from North Shropshire. The farm that my family look after here has spent the last four or five years developing a long barrow monument on it. And there's also some standing stones, and the whole area is a kind of ritual and memorial space. We had a service where we, we put the, the stone up. Symbolically, the stone was standing, and I'd put supporting poles against the stone. And I'd invited every guest to remove a pole and say a few words. And in doing so, once the last pole was removed, we were acknowledging that this stone had meaning, significance and permanence. And there was people from different faiths. There was myself um, with no faith. And there were a couple of people, I think, who had suffered bereavement. So it was a very personal uh, moment for them. And we all said a few words. My name's Peter. I'm a humanist celebrant. The reason I, I loved the whole idea of the stone is precisely because it's non-prescriptive. So you've got this structure that people have gathered around to memorialise the times. And it wasn't just about people who died. It was about the whole experience of living under the restrictions and dealing with bereavement. It was important that it shouldn't be a memorial commemorating something in the past. It had to be about the here and now. It had to be about registering that we were living through something that is frankly bloody awful. I, I just hope that if this horrible situation ever arises again, we think in advance of how we might handle this better. And these, these are people, not just numbers. I haven't watched a news bulletin since because they all start with numbers. And for me, I just see it like um, a bingo caller calling out a number or take a guess how many it is today. No, absolutely not. My mum is my mum, not a number. For me, death is a very normal everyday thing now i'm always seeing the sadness and the grief of families however i see a lot of strength i hear a lot of inspiring stories of what people have achieved in their life what they've done and what they meant to others it's certainly a fact of life and it's something we all want to prepare for before death does hit us and we live this world where we've done the best we can for religion, for God, and in terms of family. If you think about grief, it's a relationship that you have for life. It's not something you recover from. Grief softens, but grief is the mechanism, or the word to describe the mechanism for which we give thanks and remember someone we loved. So when I think about my grief, I don't ever want it to go because it's the way I remember something. And I think if you can create an environment where people can journey comfortably at their own pace, then that becomes an inherently valuable and 
constructive way of understanding how finite life is. This audio piece is part of the research project Social Distance, Digital Congregation, British Ritual Innovation under COVID-19, led by Manchester Metropolitan University in association with the University of Chester. Funded by UK Research and Innovation through the Arts and Humanities Research Council. It was researched by Paulina Collata and produced by Lucia Scadzocchio from Social Broadcast and Sasha Eddy Linda. For more information, visit the project's website at bric19mmu.ac.uk. With thanks to contributors Toby Angel, Tim Ashton, Peter Gaskin, Louise Winter, Wahid Khan, Lisa Wilkinson, Rachel Mayer, Shoab Bucks, Mary Lawrence and Perry Mayer.